and people will be starting to place their bets. Some will say the place to be is the sidelines. Others will say now is the time to be in debt, not equity, because debt is the safest place to be. And people will, will, will sort that out. Think about private equity real estate as something that you don't do quarter by quarter. That's really the way to think about when you make a bet in real estate, it generally is a five to 10 year bet. It's gonna be um, a period of time where, where there will be write downs, values will, will uh, fall, particularly in the most vulnerable asset classes and in the countries that, that move too much to the, to the highly leveraged model of leveraging cash flows type of approach to real estate. Uh, and at the same time that that's happening, um, smart money that can take advantage of that will start to move you in. You are listening so to the AFR podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. On Monday, November 28th, 2022, on a brisk night in Toronto, Canada, I sat down with Jacques Gordon, who's the global strategist for LaSalle Investment Management, in front of an audience of institutional real estate investors organized by LaSalle the evening before the Global Property Market Conference the following day. It was a great conversation, as all conversations with Jacques Gordon are, but it was particularly special in that this may be the last public interview before he leaves LaSalle to start his new career as an academic at MIT. We had a wide-ranging discussion, covering everything from what's going on right now in the markets to perhaps how we can take a long view and understand some best practices as investors as we make our bets for the next three, five, and even 10 years. Make sure to listen in to this discussion. It's particularly charming, particularly important, uh, and particularly eye-opening. Please join me in welcoming Gunnar Branson and Jacqueline. You know, that's really striking to me because part of what we, we often think of real estate as a local business. We talk about, you know, you know, the location being everything, about the details of the locality being so important. And yet, I, it is my strong belief, based on what I've learned from AFIRE over the last four or five years, that we're also a strong force for civilization and globalization. Um, there's very few other rooms that I, well, no other room that I've been in where I've watched uh, a, a real estate uh, investor from Saudi Arabia and a real estate investor from Israel hold hands as they were speaking, you know, very heart to heart about issues, not just about what the exit cap rates were, but but also about what it means and what we're trying to do. So one of the things that I love about, you know, the more international a group can be in real estate, probably the better, because I, I personally believe this is one of those areas where we, we can be a foundational element for something that's more than just, you know, making a bucket of money, but, but somehow doing something that's more important than that. Would you agree? No, I do. I think, I think that there, there are times in your life, we were just having this uh, conversation about the industry we're in, uh, and I've been working in, in the industry for 40 years, uh, you realize we, we picked industries that allow us to tour the world and to get to know cities all over the place and to be in the back of a, a van in Mexico City trying to, to navigate the traffic and the, the, the local culture. So you, 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 we've all in this 
picked an industry that allows us to travel, to learn culture, to learn history, and to do business while we're doing that. And that's just such a privileged place to be. I, I couldn't agree more. And in the 40 years that you've been in this business, we've all seen over the last several decades more and more investing across the Canadian-U.S. border. Um, and it's a big part of what we focus on in AFIRE as well. But I'd love to get your perspective. I think it's changed a lot in terms of what the emphasis is, how institutional investors, especially in Canada, have kind of evolved in their strategies and what you've seen and what you've heard from a lot of the people in the room, including, of course, Steve Taylor, who really tells us what's going on in Canada all the time. I, I don't know how we manage without him. But it, what, what's kind of your perspective on on how that it has evolved and is evolving in terms of the, the cross-border uh, investment? Well, our guests tonight could speak much more eloquently to this than I have, but um, I think my first trip um, to Canada was in uh, for real estate, not for, for going salmon fishing in the St. John's River when I was nine years old or whatever. Whatever uh, was actually uh, touring a, uh, a for, uh, my my first uh, real estate investment management job was with the late great merchant bank Barings. Barings was an early uh, adopter to a fire, and my first uh, a fire event was in the Grosvenor Hotel in 1990 on Park Lane in London, trying to explain, as we all do, America to <laughs> to to Europeans, which was which was quite something at the time, given uh, that the politics is of the U.S. are always under scrutiny by Brits and Germans and and the Dutch who were there, and I I think what what um, what often happens in these these kinds of events is it's almost a uh, arbitrary thing who who is the the put in front as the the so-called expert and who is in the audience reacting and then discussing at the table what a bunch of hogwash or horse manure this guy was just dishing <laughs> it doesn't matter you're making a relationship and a connection mm -hmm. so i kind of view my role as a a bit court jester a bit uh a raconteur a bit just someone who brings people together so they've got something to talk about at their tables when, when uh, say, Claire Tang and Verinda Graval happen to be sitting next to each other. Good things can happen. And so that's really what you want to do um, uh, in, in this industry is to get to know the people, get to know the cultures, get to know the, the assets, tour the cities. And, and that's all by, by way of uh, kind of uh, trying to, to encourage more of us to acknowledge when you think about 40 years in, a, in an industry, what matters most, what comes to your mind as you think back, it's the people, it's the cities, it's the, the coolest um, uh, memories you have are those kinds of things. And often a fire was at the center of that for me, Gunnar. Oh, well, I'm so glad. I feel the same way. I mean, I feel like an absolute newbie to AFIRE. I've only been with them for about four or five years. I never years. did answer your question about the Canadians. Yeah, you, you didn't. You really dodged that quite quite expertly. Well, what, what's <laughs> happened in Canada, and we, they're all sitting right with us, and your podcast listeners won't even be able to picture this, is that uh, they were the early adopters, probably right after the Dutch, of realizing that they were running out of great real estate to buy in their own country they needed to get their uh, act together to go international ahead of Americans. Mm -hmm. So it's really, when you think about the, the Dutch and the Singaporeans and the Canadians, 
they are the three parts of the world that are the most international and have done it the longest and the best of any of the clients that I've worked with. They've professionalized, they've sometimes taken a, 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 a pension fund a bureaucratic approach uh, from 30 years ago and they've turned it uh, into an investment corporation approach where there's uh, staff alignment with what the investor investment program is all about. And I've just been fortunate enough to get to know a few of the other countries that have done the same and I keep coming back. It's Singapore, the Netherlands, and Canada who have done it the best. And interestingly, we're continuing to maybe go to school in the U.S. as U.S. investors uh, with those three groups, not just in terms of institutionalization of real estate and how you look at it in a more vertically integrated manner, which obviously the U.S. is notorious for not being very vertically integrated in the real estate industry, but how we look at things such as, as sustainability and ESG. It just feels like whenever I come north of the border, I'm, I'm always you know, astonished and, and impressed and, and excited about how far down the road Canadian uh, investors are in terms of understanding some of these very important parts of what we're doing. No, I agree. I think the, the, the tendency is always to want to compare one country to another and say who's ahead, who's behind, whatever. And, it, it, and I just did it and you just did yeah, it. Yeah, right, right. The fact is when you, when you get into um, a country like Australia or New Zealand or, or any of these, these amazing countries, we, I've been doing a lot of business and travels to Switzerland. Uh, you realize it's so dangerous to generalize. Right. It, it, these countries are an amalgamation of their own uh, provinces, states, uh, parts of parts of the different parts. You know, the the conversations you have in Melbourne versus Sydney versus Brisbane versus uh, Perth versus Adelaide, they're totally different. Much the way you, you travel to Winnipeg and you get a very different vibe or Calgary or Edmonton than you would in Vancouver and Toronto. So until you've actually spent enough time in a country to do that, um, you, you just don't realize what you're dealing with. It's sort of like not understanding Oxbridge versus Leeds working class culture. I mean, right. that, the, the English culture, all Americans understand because it's been, been spoon fed to us in Monty Python and Downton Abbey. So we kind of get that. Um, uh, Canadians are more subtle. We haven't, we haven't had as much Canadian culture piped into America as, we, as we've had British. So it took me a while to understand the difference between uh, the Maritimes, the, 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 the provinces with the, 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 the oil sands, and the, 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 the West Coast. It's, it's a, it, takes, it takes sometimes a lifetime to figure that out. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I think that you're right. It's true in every country and this idea that the, the devil's in the details, it's the nuance, it's understanding exactly what's there. And I think international investors such as the Canadian uh, institutions that have, that have crossed not just the U.S. border but around the world have really taken that to heart and have really kind of shown how that can be done when, when it works and when it's done well. Well, since I have you here, you know, kind of locked in that chair and you've got a microphone on you, I, I want to make sure that we hit some of those, those topics that, that we all talk about and that we all have very violent opinions about and, and we really don't know what we're talking about. So I'm, we're going to go into this territory where there, there's, although there are facts, it's not necessarily all adding up the same way. And, and to start with, it, it's on everyone's minds, of course, the central banks and the Fed in the U.S., uh, are tightening. Um, they're certainly increasing interest rates. We're seeing knock-on effects throughout the economy, and certainly we're seeing an effect um, in real estate. So 
we've seen this before. We've, we've, you know, in, in 30 or 40 years, we've been to this movie a few times um, and we know what happens. How is this period of tightening uh, different? And, and what, what should we be careful about in terms of uh, as we watch interest rates rise, as we watch uh, values change, as we watch kind of adjustment, perhaps distress, et cetera? Well, it's a, uh, uh, a movie that has is, is been uh, done and run uh, time and time again, but each, each sequel, each new director has a different take on it. I think this one is still, the, 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 the ending hasn't been written yet. It's still early on, and um, there's a lot of overreaction and a lot of uh, uh, stay on the sidelines because no one's making you do anything. Right. I think what we're we're talking up here on on the eve of the Toronto Real Estate Forum, which is a remarkable gathering of real estate people from the entire country of Canada, all in one room for the next three or four days, and this will be the topic that will be. Uh, on people's minds and will be, you'll hear both ends of that. This will be a great vintage year to invest 2023 because uh, all the dumb leverage capital is gone. This is gonna be a, 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 a horrible t thing. It's gonna be a, a 40, 50% drop in values because you can't get cheap debt anymore. You're gonna hear it all. And I think what happens when, when uh, uh, major uh, events like this, we come washing through uh, real estate is it actually takes almost years before you figure out what the heck happened. We're still gonna be talking about COVID and return to work and work from home and hybrid work. Probably for the next 20 years, we're gonna be talking about that. And certainly the next 10 years, we're still gonna be having opinions on it. I think the same will be true with debt. Um, tomorrow, I'll be sharing some of my thoughts on this, so I don't wanna give it all away. But um, I, I actually honestly think that it's over, uh, overdone, that the worries about tightening of credit and rising of interest rates and what it will do to real estate values, uh, uh, there are other things to worry about. I would have placed uh, rising interest rates for a long hold uh, uh, type of real estate investor, which, which most of us should be if we're in private equity real estate. Um, it'll be a relative blip uh, on the horizon of what real estate has to worry about. Well, as one of the things that you mentioned that, that a lot of people are worried about is, is um, we still haven't returned to the office, at least not in the numbers that we, we had back in 2019 in those glory days. It's weird to think of that as glory days, but perhaps it is and perhaps a lost one in that you're seeing a lot of CBDs uh, throughout North America and, and around the world that are continuing to suffer. And you're seeing, you know, basically populations in uh, daytime populations during uh, the office hours, certainly somewhere around half of where we think they should be, um, and seeing some impact in terms of leasing, perhaps, uh, perhaps some values. And it's different for every city, but I think there's a lot of concern there. And one of the concerns that I have is that you're seeing, you're seeing basically people treating the city in a different way. And no matter how many people go back to the office or don't go back to the office, and that's still being debated, there seems to be a different understanding of what an office is for. What are you looking at as you're watching how this changes? As you're, I mean, is there a change? Is this permanent or is this something that are you of the camp of, oh, it's all going to go back to the way it was before? What are the things that you're watching that you're going, we need to pay attention to this as this continues to evolve? 
Well, we're we're talking in a room that um, that has uh, at least one uh, flexible wall on one side, right. and generally one one of the things that I'm learning walking around the media lab and the nanotech lab and the all the different labs at, at MIT and the architecture and planning department is right next to the Center for Real Estate and walking over to Sloan where all the business schools are, I'm really realizing that one of the things that universities are very good at that we in, we in our fixed asset, asset class need to learn to do better is to constantly change and to constantly adapt and to be more flexible. Uh, LaSalle Investment Management was founded because our founder thought it would be really classy to name the company after LaSalle Street. It would be like a, a, a Bay Street or a, a, a you know Wall Street kind of name that would resonate far and wide. And he actually picked pretty well. But just one month ago, the mayor of Chicago has said LaSalle Street is miszoned. It's zoned only for offices. I'm going to change that. It can be anything. It can be, you don't need to actually come through this horrible city council in Chicago to change it to residential or hotel or, or, or data center even. Mm -hmm. And so this is what I think we in real estate need to realize. These assets, these fixed assets need to be more living and breathing and flexible. There will be capital expenditure uh, issues we're gonna have to confront. But you mentioned the big one is office. Converting it to residential looks very, very expensive to a lot of people, and yet you also realize that if it's built right, there's nothing that really holds us back from moving walls, from bringing in uh, uh, the kind of tech originally that allows the building to move with the economy, with the dem demography, and with the technology. So, so these are some of the ideas that I think are, are going to be coming in uh, bigger and bigger in the next couple of decades for real estate. How can we be more flexible? How can we really create an envelope for human activity of many different kinds, not just work or just play, but maybe work, play, and live all within the same envelope? And those seem to be the buildings and the neighborhoods that seem to be doing well right now. I mean, there's a real logic to that. And, and certainly there's a historical precedent for this if you think about what happened in the 70s and 80s where we discovered all that useless 19th century industrial warehouse and turned it into very expensive office retail and residential. We can do it again and I, I suspect it's interesting just in the last six months of conferences everyone's back to conferences now. We're all in person and having a great time actually seeing each other again. Um, but I've noticed a real change of heart in that six month period from forget it converting an office is too expensive, there's no way we'll do it, to it seemed like every other conversation at a meeting, uh, at the ULI meeting in Dallas just a couple of weeks ago was, well, we're figuring out how to convert office now. We think B and C, we can do some interesting things there and we can make it pencil out. Obviously, as values change and everything else, that that perhaps is part of the evolution of our, of our thinking. Um, so it sounds like you're pretty positive about our ability to be flexible. Yes, there'll, there'll be a cost uh, that will be borne by uh, the industry, by investment managers, by in, uh, institutional investors to get us to where we need to be. And will there be a return on that cost? That's an open question. Right. Um, probably a similar segue could be made to the, the way in which we're still trying to figure out um, uh, uh, carbon footprints and greenhouse gas emissions and the use of energy in our buildings 
such that we can actually have a pathway to a pledge that probably most Canadian and many American, not all, firms have made to go net zero. We don't have, it's a remarkable thing to make that pledge. Yeah. No one has a friggin' clue how to do it. And there are only about 20 net zero carbon buildings in the world, and they've all been built by either German think tanks or NASA. Right. So where are these net zero carbon buildings, Gunner? <laughs> and we've all pledged to take yep. our entire portfolios and make them net zero, right? Well, and plus, <laughs> you know, 85% of, of the buildings that we'll be in, in in 25 years have already been built. Uh, so we, we've got a, a very big hill to climb when it comes to net zero. You're absolutely right. Um, but well, these are these are... These are, these are what the industry will be working on for decades. And, yeah. and the younger listeners to this podcast will, will have a lot of you know, challenges to get it right. right. The older people who are going to be moving into academic positions like me will have a lot of fun listening and learning from a new approach to uh, taking the, say, the carbon footprint of a building and to improve it. I feel sure at MIT, the young engineers in my classes are gonna know more about what's doable than I will. Right. But I'm gonna be really looking forward to hearing about putting it into a financial model that may also have a dual mandate that you're running together, where you're measuring your carbon footprint just like you're measuring the, uh, the financial returns with perhaps as many line items as, as a typical uh, DCF, a discounted cash flow or right. an Argus setup would have. And it wouldn't surprise me if Argus started actually allowing us to track greenhouse gas and, and energy emissions. And they'd be foolish if they didn't start at least begin to, to map out the software to track it. And in fact, some of the best uh, tracking is being done by firms that actually uh, uh, help investment managers and, and owners of assets figure out what they've got and how to report it into an organization like Gresb. Mm -hmm. so, so we're already moving very quickly there to tracking it. Where we haven't yet moved is beyond reporting and beyond um, uh, just getting the data to actually improving it and to manage it. And that's the next step. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as we're looking at that, and that's that's almost more the positive side. There's another side to this coin too, which is climate risk, which has become much more of a headline issue over the last couple of years, as we've seen a lot more things go horrifically wrong. Do you think that investors are appropriately pricing climate risk in their pro formas? And if not, what do we need to do? Well, the, the glib answer is no, they're not. But the, the other glib thing is that most investment managers and most institutions live quarter to quarter. And, and if you live quarter to quarter, you can get a buy with not pricing it for maybe as long as three, five years. Mm -hmm. But eventually, the whole idea with climate change is that the next 10 years aren't going to look like the last 10 or the 10 before. And it will differ tremendously by uh, geography and by part of the world you're in. Uh, we're up here in Toronto talking uh, to a room with a lot of Canadians in it. We recently asked one of our climate risk vendors to say which country in the world has got the perhaps some of the, the safest uh, uh, places to be in terms of climate risk. And uh, number one, two, and three, and five on the list, we're all Canadian. 
for whatever crazy circumstance, your 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 Canadian um, uh, real estate is 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 very well protected from climate risk. Not true of, of much of, of, of um, uh, the east coast of the U.S. Not true of where the great uh, cities uh, in Asia are, from Tokyo to Shanghai. Uh, but this is, this is something that uh, you ask, is it priced yet? No, it's not priced yet. But there's also a chapter that hasn't been written yet, which is, uh, what do you do about it? Right. What combination of insurance, hardening, uh, infrastructure, and backup? Uh, the Dutch have dealt with this for centuries, right? So it can be dealt with, and uh, this is the next next great challenge that that the the industry will be tackling, and, it, and it's a challenge that will last the rest of our lifetimes, I'm sure. William H. White, Holly White, as he was known, uh, a writer, a journalist, wrote for Fortune magazine, wrote eight books. And he just later in his life, when he was about my age, 66, 67, started going to, and he lived in New York City, he started going to public parks like Bryant Park behind New York City, behind the New York Public Library, and just shooting photos of how people <laughs> moved around the space and what attracted them and what they did when there was an, a bum in the corner and what, <laughs> what they did uh, when, when, when you know, a beautiful uh, uh, woman or man walked by, and all they, they cap he captured all this stuff on photographs, and he learned what he was a close observer of human behavior, right. and and that and he was seeing what worked and what didn't work in parks, in public open spaces, and uh, and he wrote a book about it, and he and he I heard him give several lectures, maybe you did too. It's just a fascinating thing. So keeping your eyes and ears and your powers of observation open, I mean, that's really what, what, what we're talking about by getting your head out of the computer model from time to time. Still, the young people have the technology skills that the old people don't. Right. <laughs> but, but what the old people can help the younger people with is understand what drives every line in that cash flow and better understand what, what, what's behind it. And I think those two things, this is why I'm very optimistic that, that, uh, the, that the generational uh, 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 fun that I'm looking forward to in the classroom is there's so much to learn from somebody who grew up with uh, and, and technology at their learning how to swipe. My two-year-old grandchild knows how to swipe all the pictures on my, my camera roll. Well, I mean, what on earth is that? Mm -hmm. so, so in other words, being a smart observer and, and always attuned to what people are doing and seeing is, is where I was coming out on that. One last kind of mode of thinking before we open it up to the, the, the true geniuses in the room, uh, once the, the clowns finish their, their number up here, is what do you think real estate gets wrong? What do you think that we miss that maybe we need to pay more attention to? Well, there's so many, so many, so many things we miss. I, I don't claim to have this all figured out, Gunner, but certainly um, thinking back in 40 years and, and where, where, where things went right and when things didn't go right, I'd say the number one thing that I see as a pattern is, is realizing that real estate serves economies. Occasionally it leads economies and usually there's trouble when it does. And the idea that real estate is part of an integral to a society, an economy, a city, an infrastructure network, and that 
the single asset analysis of a DCF, if it's a blinded approach and you miss all that other stuff, you're missing the, the key to how real, real estate really works. Real estate serves those societies, serves those economies, and you need to acknowledge it and understand it and underwrite it. And once you've done that, I think you're much, much better prepared for whatever changes come down the pike. So um, I don't know if, if, if that's the, the most creative, clever answer to a very uh, broad, broad, like what did we get right or what did we get wrong? I also think too that, that guys my age got a lot right through fixing the problems of the prior generation had made. And the same will be true for the next generation. The people who are 30 and 40 are gonna go, why the heck did they do it that way? Why were they writing these leases without inflation in indexing? Well, what were they thinking? Clearly inflation is, should be indexed. And you know, the answer is it was. We had it in the 80s, we had lease indexation in this country and the Europeans never lost it. So, you know, these are the kinds of dumb things that we've done. We thought that we didn't need it, so we threw it away. The Europeans, for a lot of reasons lost in the mists of time, I'm sure, kept it in their leases, that leases would adjust to CPI or RPI uh, every year or every three years, depending on the country. So, you know, these are, these are kind of like uh, boneheaded things that the industry did in different parts of the world at different times. We'll continue to make mistakes like that but we'll correct them and we'll learn from them. That's, that's the great uh, hope of progress, where, where progress uh, can, can uh, uh, be, be the triumph of, of hope over greed and fear. Well, and, and with all the, the kind of the work in how change happens and how people and organizations change, the first step always is understanding where you are and being clear about what you know and what you don't know and to be able to admit it to each other without shame. To be able to say, I don't know what's gonna happen with Office. Let's keep watching. Let's learn and let's figure out. I can't think of a better person to learn with than the professor himself, uh, or soon to be professor. Uh, Jacques, thank you so much for joining us here um, at this conference and I look forward to hearing more of your thoughts over the next couple of days, so thank you so much. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.